Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's November of 2018. It's been two months since Chris Watts stood in a packed courtroom, his legs shackled wearing an orange jumpsuit, and was formally charged with the murder of his wife, Shan Ann, their two daughters, and the death of the unborn fetus. He's been incarcerated ever since this August court appearance, having been denied bail. But even with Chris behind bars, Shan Ann's parents, Frank and Sandy Rusek, are still living their worst nightmare. The man they trusted to honor and protect Shan Ann and the girls had instead brutally killed them. They were sure of it. With their family in tatters, Sandy and Frank had no choice but to try and move forward. Move forward despite their shock and heartbreak. In September, they held a memorial service for Shan Ann and the girls. Later that month, they moved some of their personal items out of the suburban Colorado home they once shared with their husband, father, and ultimately murderer, Chris Watts. Piece by piece, items that Shannon once used on a daily basis were loaded into a truck and put in storage, never to be sat on or slept in again. A chair, a bed frame, a mirror, they were all now part of a life that in one instant ceased to exist. As Shannon's family struggled to pick up the pieces, a haunting question remained for her loved ones. What had really happened that fateful day when Shannon, Bella, and Celeste were abruptly and cruelly taken from the world? The story Chris was telling was unfathomable to everyone who knew Shannon, especially her family. Not only were they grieving the loss of their daughter, but they had to listen to his sick lies. They were desperate for the real truth about her murder and the murder of her children. They wanted this to be told. They were desperate for justice. But would they ever see it? To be honest, it just didn't seem likely. Chris had pleaded guilty, but he didn't officially change his story. Shannon's parents thought the moment for him to come clean had passed. He had had his day in court and was sentenced. But then, that day did come, and it almost had them wishing that it did not come. It almost had them wishing they never learned the truth. Because when Chris finally revealed what he did to his wife and children, it would shake this family and even harden investigators to their core with its malice. I've been doing this for 45 years, and I have to tell you, this is one I could not compartmentalize. This is one I could not leave at the office when I left to come home. All of this is coming up on this episode of The Devil Beside Me, the Chris Watts story. Husband, father, killer. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. On November 6, 2018, Chris Watts wept as the judge read each of his charges out loud. He had become so infamous and so hated 
that he was forced to don a bulletproof vest for the hearing. After each charge was read, Chris quietly responded, guilty. In exchange for Chris's guilty plea, the district attorney in Weld County agreed not to seek the death penalty. Sources said Chris only pleaded guilty to save his own hide from the same terrible fate he had bestowed upon his family. But despite pleading guilty, he still alleged that he had only killed his wife, Shannon, after he had walked in on her strangling their two little girls in order to punish him for threatening with divorce. Chris's blatant lies didn't fool detectives. Nobody bought that. He said that because the narcissistic personality that he had made him try to fashion this where he was on the moral high ground, where he was striking a blow, a blow of revenge for his precious daughters. But one thing we know about narcissists is they don't know how to read the room. They don't know that people are looking at them and rolling their eyes all at one in the same time. No, it didn't fool detectives. It sure did not fool her family. Even so, that didn't mean they thought they would ever get him to admit what really happened. For now, him pleading guilty, well, it just seemed like it was just going to have to be enough. On November 19, 2018, Chris Watts was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. He would spend the rest of his life in prison. He would never draw another breath of free air. When the judge presiding over the case handed down the verdict, he said, and I quote, This is perhaps the most inhumane and vicious crime that I have handled out of the thousands of cases that I have seen. Shannon's mother, Sandy, supported the district attorney's sentencing, saying, He made the choice to take those lives. I do not want to be in the position of making the choice to take his. And yet, Chris still held a certain power. He is still the only person who knows what really happened. And just as importantly, why? The only person alive that could answer those questions. Chris's arrest and his sentencing may have been over and done with, but the wounds he caused, well, you can forgive, but you just never forget. For his own protection, Chris had been moved from Colorado to serve his time in a prison in the state of Wisconsin. At his previous facility, all of the inmates knew all about who Chris was and the horrific crimes he had committed. They would shout at him from their cells, encouraging him to commit suicide and even give him suggestions about how to do it. They would scream out that he should hang himself or try to drown himself in a prison toilet bowl. Chris was kept in isolation, separate from everyone else for his own protection. In order for Chris to even just walk down the hallway of that former prison with guards escorting him, his fellow inmates had to be put on lockdown. You have to understand, there are other inmates in that prison that have no hope of ever getting out. That means they have nothing to lose, and they could become heroes in that institution by taking out this individual who, believe you me, is at the bottom of the pecking order in that hierarchy. So even though they might do it in front of the guards, even though they might do it in front of cameras, what are they going to do? Give them another life sentence? To give you perspective, housed with other criminals, Chris was regarded amongst them as being the most evil. That speaks volumes about how people react to this case. Everyone from your average Joe to a hardened, incarcerated criminal thinks Chris is the lowest of the low. At this new undisclosed prison, Chris feels safer. He likes that he can mingle with other prisoners and not be so closed off. But then, seemingly out of the blue, on February 18th, three investigators from the Frederick Police Department, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, 
and the FBI entered for a face-to-face meeting with Chris at the prison where he was serving his three consecutive life sentences. In the brief time he had been incarcerated, he was already thinner with a more haggard appearance. Gone was the all-American, muscled-up dad. We still don't know why they went in, but we do know that for some reason Chris decided it was time, after all these months of horror, to come clean and tell a new version of the truth. One that seemed to be a lot more believable than what he had said before. This meeting with investigators was recorded and later released to the media. They became known as the Chris Watts Confession Tapes. When they were made public, the recordings would transfix the millions of Americans who had closely followed this case from its start. There were five full hours of audio that captured Chris Watts laying out the full story. To the outside world, Chris had presented one image, that of the laid-back, hard-working, and loving father. Now that image had been stripped away. He had gone in less than a year from being known as a family man to a family annihilator, to a complete monster. There was no more point in pretending to be someone he was not and nowhere for him to hide. Family Annihilator. Think about those words put together. An annihilator of your entire family. You wipe them off the face of the earth. Most family annihilators end with killing themselves. But then there is a certain segment of cowardice who stop short. They just kill everybody else and not themselves. When investigators first sat down with Chris behind bars, there was some laughter between them. There was some friendly chatter. The investigators made small talk with the wife and child killer. They asked him how he was doing inside. They commented on how he looked different. He told him about the frequent jailhouse haircuts he received. But for the investigators, All this light banter was simply playing in to the narcissistic personality of someone that wanted to be the center of attention, somebody that wanted to be the focus, and it was just a means to an end. They were manipulating the manipulator. You have to understand, for him, This was all about him. Because at this point, everything I've heard from him, everything I have seen about him, he has yet to show any genuine remorse, in my opinion. He has yet to show any sorrow. He has yet to show that he appreciates the gravity, the monstrousness of what he did to his wife and those precious children. Everything has been about him. It was at the time, from the moment he was standing in the driveway giving that self-destructive interview, to the point where he was in the courtroom and all of the tears, what little there were, clearly were about being caught, not for what he did, but for being caught for what he did. And this was just a new audience. This was just another time in the spotlight. This was just another time to command attention. The oldest police interrogation tactic in the book is to play good cop, bad cop. In this case, investigators wanted to befriend Chris. They wanted him to trust them. That was the only way they felt they would get the answers that they needed. They needed to soften him up and not make him feel like it was three against one. And Chris's calm demeanor, his ability to joke around, what does that say? He's in prison for the most gruesome crime imaginable. And he's treating this like a social outing. 
like these people came to see him because they want to spend time with that kind of person that crushed the bones of his daughter and shoved them into an oil storage tank. That's how they want to spend their afternoon. That's how out of touch with reality he is. So he seems calm, cool, collected, like he's made peace with what he's done. He's okay with that, and he believes that these people have intellectualized it. They're there with an intellectual curiosity. He's serving a purpose. So they have a sense of gratitude towards him. Investigators assured him that the case was closed. They were not there to press any further charges. The three investigators told him that they found his case different. And it was different. It was a case with so many facets. And the feds wanted to piece it all together. Again... They're playing to his ego. Not hard to do. The special investigator Graham from the FBI put it to Chris this way. To this day, there's not one person who has said to me, I saw it coming. I knew Chris was like that. Not one person. So you see what this means to Chris is, wow, I'm an enigma. I have puzzled America. I puzzled the police. I puzzled my family. Nobody saw it coming. I was too smooth. I was much too complex. So I'm like a criminal mastermind here. So they're in here trying to deconstruct this because it will teach them how to deal with these kind of things in the future. I am a treasure trove of information. That's how he looks at this. It's all about him, him, him. And tragically, to some degree, he's sickeningly correct. Because as a society, we have a need for life to make sense. We need to fit everything together. Because we are looking for a way to predict why people that are just seemingly evil do the things that they do. And we do learn from it when we study these folks. We've had so many school shootings, so many mass killings, and based on studying these, we've learned things. Like approximately 80% of school shooters tell at least one person what they're going to do and when they're going to do it before it happens. We've learned that by studying these things. Almost two-thirds tell two or more people what they're going to do, when they're going to do it, and how they're going to do it before it happens. People don't react to it. They don't take it seriously. They don't take actions to stop it in most cases. But we've learned that there is what's called leakage. So you can learn by talking to these people as distasteful as it is. And Chris's visitors wanted to leave no stone unturned. They wanted to talk to him about his mindset before, during, and after the murders. They wanted to know how he murdered his innocent children. They wanted to know why. They wanted to know the thought process that made this okay. They wanted to know how this got into his head to begin with. People were saying, look, if you don't want to be there, just walk away, get a divorce. If you don't want to get a divorce, just abandon them. Load up with your mistress and disappear. As bad as that sounds, it's better than murdering everybody. So they're wanting to know, tell me how you got on this path. What was your internal dialogue? Who did you discuss this with? What did you say to yourself? Take me through the moment that you actually did the deed. And how in God's name Did you ever think you were going to get away with this? Because the next day, your very social wife, your very family-involved, engaged wife was going to just not be there? And her children were just not going to be there? Did you think people were going to just shrug this off? 
What were you telling yourself? Were you telling yourself that you would just say, yeah, gee, I don't know. They went on a play date. I don't know where. And they just never come back? They want to know how he's playing this out in his mind. They started with the day of the murders. August 13th, 2018. He told the investigators that Shannon returned home from her business trip around 2 a.m. She initiated sex, which Chris felt like was a test on her part to see if he was still interested in her since their marriage had been on eggshells for the past few months. They did have sex. Now, think about that for a minute. You're going to find as this unfolds that he did not snap. This was not something where things went south, he flew into a blind rage, and did this on the spur of the moment, because there's going to be evidence that he dumped the bodies at a site where there was a crew scheduled to be that day to do some repair work, and he told them not to come that day. Now, that's because he knew he was going to be out there disposing of bodies. So this wasn't something that he snapped. So here's how cold-blooded we're talking about. He gets in bed with this woman that he knows he's going to kill in a few hours and is able to perform sexually with her. Now wrap your head around that, and it will give you an idea of what kind of cold-blooded, detached individual we're talking about. Now, he knew enough to say that he felt strange being intimate with her, and that he felt like maybe it was a trigger point or something like you hit the push button on a bomb and it just blows up. Something in my head, something was irking me. I had to say something. Well, yeah, I understand. That's why I said he's telling a new version of this because we do know he had already dismissed the crew. After the sexual encounter, he says they fell back asleep, and later on in the morning when he woke up to get ready for work, Chris claims he told Shannon their marriage was over. Now, both Chris and Shannon knew there was an elephant in the room, a big issue in their marriage. Things hadn't been adding up for Shannon for a long time when it came to her husband's behavior. He didn't seem excited at all for the birth of their son and had been really distant. He just didn't want to engage or talk about that. From discovery evidence police made, Shannon and her friends in text conversations surmised that Chris was likely stepping out on Shannon. And right before she came home, Chris thought it was likely that she had seen a credit card charge Chris had made for a dinner for two. Usually, he only used his company gift cards for his little whining and dining tryst with his mistress, Nicole, but this time was an exception. Regardless of that dinner charge, Shannon already had her suspicions, and Chris confirmed this to law enforcement during the confession. When Chris told Shannon point-blank that he didn't think the marriage was going to work, he recalls her repeating, I knew there was someone else. I knew there was someone else. I just knew it. At this point during the confession, Chris says he was straddling Shannon in their bed, making her fear he would harm the baby. He wouldn't admit to the affair. Instead, he just told her he just didn't love her. With that, according to Chris, Shannon told him, You're never going to see your children again. Now, it's interesting to note here that in these tapes, Chris does admit that the anger during these arguments was coming from him, not Shannon. And let's remember that in Chris's original story, Shannon was the aggressor, the one who killed her children while Chris watched in horror. But now, here's what Chris said. I think it was more anger from me and more like desperation from her because she wanted to fix it. And she knew she knew something wasn't right. 
So at this point, he's not really sure how to spin this. Because understand, there's part of him that still wants to kind of take a high road. It's kind of like, you guys get it, right? It was like I was trapped, right? I mean, he's still trying to win these guys over. That's, again, you remember I said narcissists, they don't read the room. These guys come in making small talk. Hey, how you doing? You know, how's life? You adjusting? It's like they care about him. And he's falling for that. So it's kind of like they're trivializing this. Like, yeah, we get it. And he said, he's like, I was really trapped here. I was caught between a rock and a hard place. During this entire heated conversation between he and Shan Ann, and Chris says it was around 20 minutes, he is on top of Shan Ann straddling her. Now understand, this is a position of complete dominance. He straddles Shan Ann to overpower her physically and emotionally. He's the one cheating and the one that he says felt trapped and out of control. Like I said, he's got these feelings for his mistress, and here's this showdown confrontation he's having with his wife. It's like all about him again. I've got to be true to my feelings. I don't love you. I do love her. It's about me. It's about me. It's about me. This was a new account, and it was as riveting as it was horrifying. Think about this from Shan Ann's point of view. She's had sex with this man. Now he says, it's over. I don't love you. And he's sitting on top of this pregnant woman who we know is not well. He has her pinned to the bed. She hadn't washed off her makeup from the night before. And he described tears running down her face in vivid black streaks. And once he said he no longer loved her, that was when Shannon ordered him to get off of her, saying he would never see Bella and Celeste again. Did Chris know that he was going to strangle his wife from the moment he first straddled her on the bed? He claims to this day he isn't sure. Here's what he said. Just like, the whole, everything that happened that morning, I just I don't know, like... Like, I'm trying to go back in my head, I'm just like, I didn't want to do this, but I did it. Everything just kind of like, it just felt like it was, I don't even want to say it, it felt like I had to. It just felt like there was already something in my mind that was planned that I was going to do it, and then I woke up that morning, it was going to happen, and I had no control of it. In Chris's words, he said he felt like he was in a rage and snapped. As I've already indicated, I don't believe that for one Second, I believe this was pre-planned, premeditated. I've spoken before about how when people are angry, they're really at their weakest. What the anger is masking is hurt, fear, or frustration. And I do believe Chris was feeling all of that. But what he did with those emotions was inexcusable. Look, Robin and I have done a lot of work helping victims of domestic violence. And of course, in this case, there wasn't any known history of domestic violence prior to the murders. She hadn't reported it to her family. She hadn't reported it to her friends. A lot of times, victims are ashamed, so they don't want to talk about it. So she never told any of her friends or family if he was physically abusive. And we can only speculate, but she certainly hadn't reported it. It was more in his nature to shrink away from confrontation rather than to express emotion. Now, he claimed his emotions that morning could be described as the epitome of being angry, the epitome of showing rage, the epitome of losing your mind. Now, to my way of thinking, this murder was premeditated. Now, I've talked about these two differences before. There is a distinct difference between the irresistible impulse 
and the impulse not resisted. Now think about that for a second. There's an irresistible impulse where you just simply lose control, crime of passion. There's nothing you can do to stop it. You get on that highway, you get going, and you lose control. There's no way to pump the brake. There's no way to inhibit your behavior. It's just blind rage out of control. And the next thing you know, you're just sitting there with blood on your hands. And you're honest to God saying, what have I done? On the other hand, there is the impulse to act that you choose not to resist. And when we're talking about the irresistible impulse, that's when somebody snaps. In my opinion, Chris is definitely under the umbrella of the impulse not resisted. He may not have known how he was going to do it, but if he didn't know he was going to do it, why did he tell that crew not to come to that drilling site that day? They were scheduled to be there to make repairs. He said, don't come, no problem, I can handle it myself. Why would he steer them away if he didn't know he was going to be out there doing something he didn't want anybody to see? He waited for her to return from that trip. He had told Nicole that he was soon going to be available. And when she came home, he killed her. And then he went on to kill his girls. He wiped the slate clean. He may not have known whether he was going to hit her in the head or choke her or whatever, but I believe 100% that he went into that room and intended to be the only one to come out alive. Chris told the investigators that Shannon didn't fight back while he was strangling her. He didn't have any defensive wounds on him because she never clawed him. He said she also never closed her eyes. He said he thought she might have prayed. It was just like, I don't even want to know what, what she saw when she looked back at me, honestly. Did you look at her? What was she doing? Why do you think she wasn't fighting? Uh, maybe she was praying. Maybe she was just... I read, read the Bible that said, you know, like, you know, uh, heard the scripture that says, don't uh, uh, forgive these people for they do not know what they do. Maybe she was saying that. I don't know what she was saying in her head. He saw that she was dead. He claims that after she was gone, as he put it, he didn't know what was happening and felt it was a traumatic event, that he wasn't in his right mind and had no control over his mind or his actions. Again, understand what he's saying here. He has just choked his wife, who's pregnant with his unborn child, to death. And he's talking about how traumatic it was for him. He had a heated, passionate argument with his pregnant wife. Okay, it happens. He had killed Shannon, and he had killed their son. Now, at this point, if you do all of a sudden come back into the realm of some kind of reason, what do you do? You pick up the phone and you call 911. You start CPR. You try to revive your wife. You do anything you can to try to undo what you've done. But Chris didn't do any of those things, did he? No, he didn't, of course. He continued on his murder spree. He still had two more human beings to murder. Innocent little girls. So if you snap, think about this. We only have one arousal system in our body, okay? And it's adrenergic arousal. And it comes to a point. It comes to a peak. We call it our fight or flight system, and it all comes to a peak. Everything builds up, and bang, you snap. You do what you're going to do. And when you do it, then there is a great release of tension. Something happens. You don't snap for hours. You snap in a moment. It builds up, and bang, you snap. Snapping is not when you kill someone, then wrap their body up, move them downstairs, load them into a vehicle, 
Then you've got two other children that you have to wrangle. You get them, get them moved, loaded, da, 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 da. Then you go and then kill two other people in a different time frame. That's not snapping. That's premeditated murder across locations, across time. There are many, many opportunities there to go, wait a minute, what the hell am I doing? What's going on here? I blanked out for a while. I've got a dead woman in my car. What's going on? That's not snapping. Chris's next revelation was even more chilling. Shannon was lying dead on the bed when his oldest daughter, Bella, came into the room carrying her blanket. Chris believed that she had been woken by the commotion in the bedroom. Even at four years old, Bella knew something was wrong and asked her daddy what was wrong with mommy. Chris told her that mommy don't feel good, and Bella thought her mother was sleeping. Now here is where the in-depth story of what Chris does makes your blood run cold if it doesn't already, and I'm sure that it does. It also contradicts him telling investigators he was in this state of shock. He snapped. Because what he does next in front of his children seems very methodical. When people are in shock, understand they move in a very zombie-like fashion. They don't think well. They're not coordinated. They don't move in an efficient fashion but not Chris. By his own account, he wastes no time in getting Shannon out of the bed and figuring out how to get her body out of the house. If you kill someone in a blind rage or a state of shock, there's a good chance you might not have the wherewithal to make your next move. You might sit on the end of the bed and stare blankly at the wall, but you're likely not going to immediately and with efficiency begin to execute a plan of extracting a corpse from a second floor and relocating the body. Now, Shannon was still wearing her bra, underwear, and the shirt that she had worn when she first got into bed. Chris moved her body face down, wrapping her in the bedsheet. He then attempted to carry Shannon's body down the stairs. When he slipped carrying her down the stairs, Chris then dragged her body down the rest of the flight, her feet creating a thud sound. Four-year-old Bella? She's watching this all happen. Chris told investigators Bella was smart. She knew something was going on. Again, she asked, what's wrong with mommy? And again, Chris lied to his daughter and told her that mommy doesn't feel good. Bella followed her father downstairs. Chris backed his pickup truck into the driveway. We know this part of what he told police was accurate because police had seen this on the security tape from the neighbor. He put Shannon's body into the back seat of his truck on the floorboard. Now this was a extended cab truck, had a front seat and a back seat puts her on the floor in the back seat. By this time, his youngest daughter, Cece, has also woken up. So these two little girls are now up and moving throughout the house, watching as their father is beginning the process of disposing of their mother's corpse. They had no idea they would be next. They were too little to understand exactly what was going on, which in some small way, I guess, is a blessing. But really, you wish they had grasped this with at least a moment of clarity beyond their years and bolted across the yard and run to a neighbor or anything screaming help 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 but of course when daddy says mommy doesn't feel good they trusted him they blindly believed in him this was their father and at this age their father and mother are their whole world and they adored him just days before Shannon had posted a video of Bella as she sang, My daddy is a hero. He helps me grow up big and strong. Is there anything more vile than a person that is put in a position of trust that uses that trust to betray the child? So the father that these two little girls worshipped and saw as their hero, the man who had given them life, was now about to take it away with his bare hands. Chris put his lunchbox in the truck. Even after what he had just done, 
supposedly having snapped and now being in a state of shock, he had the presence of mind to pack his lunch. A twisted detail, but again, it's one that indicates he was fully present and in the moment he knew he would be going to work that day as if nothing had happened. He then put Bella and Celeste, get this, in the back of his truck on the bench seat with their feet dangling over, resting on the dead body of their mother who lay lifeless on the truck's floor. Now, if you remember, we talked a couple of episodes back about how Chris stated that all three of them were dead when he put them in his truck in the early morning hours of August 13th, but that was not true. That was a lie. Shannon had not murdered the two girls. His daughters were still alive when he methodically, planfully, deliberately drove them to where he would kill them. He could have put them in the seat next to him, but he put them in the back seat where their feet would rest on their dead mother's body. Now, I'm sorry. I don't believe in accidents. I don't believe in coincidences. There's something that we refer to as when people lie and they're kind of smug and glib about it called duping delight. And they just do things that they just take extra pleasure in. And you can't get up early enough in the morning or stay up late enough at night to convince me that him putting those two little girls in the back seat with their feet resting on their mother's dead body was not a vicious, conscious act. During the drive to that remote oil site, Chris told investigators he wasn't thinking. He was thinking enough to get her downstairs into the truck and pack his lunch and get the girls in the back seat, but he wasn't thinking. But there had to be some thought going on because he drove out there. He didn't get lost. He and his lunch and his dead wife and dead son and two daughters got there. This remote oil field that we've talked about, the one Chris knew about from his job at the local town oil rig, and he had also warned a co-worker, as I said earlier, not to show up there that day. He drove to the site. The drive from his family home took between 45 minutes and an hour. He didn't stop. He didn't turn back. He didn't switch directions to go search for help. This snap that he talked about, this, this blind rage, went on for an hour while he operated a motor vehicle in traffic from point A to point B. And if you ever wonder if you can stay in a blind rage for an hour, go out in the backyard and try screaming for an hour. Try screaming and jumping up and down for an hour and see how long you last. See how long you can stay in a blind rage physiologically. It's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. On the drive over, the little sisters held on to each other. At times they fell asleep, and at one point Bella told her father it smelled in the truck. This was most likely due, at least I hope, due to trash bags Chris had purposely tossed in the back of the truck to hopefully obscure their mother's body from the girls. Chris finally arrived at the final destination, and first he removed Shannon's body from the truck. She was still wrapped in one of the bed sheets from their home. Think about how thin a bed sheet is. He placed her body on the ground near where he would ultimately bury her. Again, think about how thin a bed sheet is. She wasn't rolled up in a thick piece of carpet. He says both of the girls ask him, what are you doing to mommy? Chris says he does remember what he said in response to that heartbreaking question. Can you imagine if you even allow your mind to go to such a dark place? If you can be empathetic with these two children at this moment, they're standing out in this field, and I don't know if you've ever been to a drilling site, but they're kind of scorched earth. A lot of time there's caliche, gravel, sand. It's just kind of scraped off earth. Very stark, very cold. And they're watching their father dragging their mother's body wrapped up in a paper thin bedsheet. Children don't have a big vocabulary at that age, but they're very perceptive. They're instinctual. They have a bond with their mother. They may not have been able to articulate what was going on, but they certainly knew it was wrong. They had to be absolutely gripped with fear. Two little girls in this strange, 
foreign habitat, watching the woman that nurtured them, held them, comforted them, fed them, being dragged around like a sack of potatoes. Once Shannon was set on the ground, Chris returned to the truck telling investigators, and I quote, Cece was first. He took the blue Yankees blanket she was holding, held it over her head, and suffocated her while her sister Bella watched. He says he doesn't know how long it took. When Celeste died, he took her out of the truck, picked up her body, and made his way over to the oil tank. He opened up the hatch and dropped the little girl in feet first. So now Shannon is dead. His unborn son is dead. Little Cece is dead. So now standing out there on this oil site is just Chris Watts and little Bella. When Chris returned to the truck, he says that she asked him what had just happened to her sister and if the same thing was going to happen to her. Chris told investigators he does remember if he said nothing or if he told Bella yes. He then put the Yankee blanket over Bella's head and smothered her in the same way he had Celeste. There are signs that Bella fought back during her murder. Her autopsy showed that she had bitten down on her tongue while she was being smothered. This is consistent with Chris's new story that Bella's head was twisting under the blanket as he smothered and strangled her. Chris said Bella screamed out, Daddy, no, and Chris says it was the last words she ever spoke. When I sat down with Shannon's parents, Sandy and Frank, they spoke to me about how horrific this must have been for their grandchildren. Do you, and just be honest here, because I, I so want to help you with this, do you torture yourself with wondering what they were thinking in those five Every moments? second of yes. my life. Every day. And what do you say to yourself? That they were screaming for their mom and us. No doubt in my mind. I dream about it all the time. I say to Frankie every day, I bet you she was screaming for her nana and her Uncle Frankie and her pup up. No doubt in my mind. We lived with them for 15 months. When Bella was gone, Chris took her to the oil tank next to the one Celeste was in, and again he opened the hatch and tried to shove Bella inside. He recalled Bella was harder to get in, and he had to manipulate her small, lifeless limbs in order to get her into the tight opening. Chris claims that he just doesn't know why he chose to put his daughter's bodies in two separate tanks, but he told investigators he was certain they were both already dead when he submerged them in the oil. And I don't know if you've ever been around crude oil, but I can tell you it is ugly, and it reeks, and it is thick and dirty and corrosive. It is just nasty, horrible substance. And he took those two precious little girls and put them in that horrible, corrosive muck. Now he's got his wife's body just lying on top of the ground, wrapped in this bedsheet. He said he used a rake to clear away weeds and dug a shallow hole in the earth with a shovel and lowered his wife's body into it. And as he did, he looked at her face and he noticed her eyes were bloodshot. Those blood vessels burst. It's called petechia. He buried Shannon, still wrapped in the sheet from their marriage bed, the sheet that he had made love to her on just hours before. So with that, he turned his worksite into a burial ground, the worksite that he told someone the day before, don't show up tomorrow. The same man that said he snapped, didn't know this was going to happen, he just snapped, but the day before he told his co-worker, don't show up. I'll handle everything, don't show up. He then returned to his work truck where he had a change of clothes. He disposed of what he was wearing when he committed the murders, as well as the Yankee blanket that he had used to smother Cece and Bella. He cleverly threw the items into a construction dumpster. We know what happens next. He went to work. He carried on if it were just another Monday, feigning surprise when he found out his family was missing. 
During this latest confession, Chris maintained he had no plan in place about what he was going to do about his now missing family. He said he had no idea how he was able to act so normal at work. Now, again, Chris claims the murders were not planned, and of course, that assertion does hold water in one sense in that it certainly was not a mastermind plan. It was sloppy. It was not well thought out because it folded with the least bit of scrutiny. I mean, he was caught so easily because he just simply didn't have a plan because narcissists disbelieve that they're so entitled, that they're so special, that they're so unique that everybody will just believe what they say. So they don't need to think ahead. I'll just tell them what happened. I don't know what happened, that they just went on a play date, and I haven't seen them since, and I'm so special that people are just going to believe me. I'm entitled to be believed. When we talk about this concept of the family annihilator, we know that while their actions may seem impulsive and sometimes are in reaction to some trigger, When you start unpacking it all and you start looking at what led up to the violent act, it just doesn't ever come out of the blue. I mean, nobody's having a great month, a great year financially, a a great run of, of life and just decide to annihilate their family. In Chris's case, he did have a month of practically living with his mistress while his wife was in North Carolina with his children. His marriage problems had planted that seed in his head of possibly wanting a fresh start. This family murder wasn't out of the blue. This wasn't a snap. This wasn't a blind rage that happened because she said, you're not going to see your children again. Where this did differ from many other cases of family annihilators was that unlike family murderers, as I said, Chris didn't commit suicide. And part of his explanation for that was that he doesn't own any weapons. And even though he had thought about using gas to blow himself up, that he ultimately chose not to do so because he didn't want to injure anyone else who might be in the area. See, again, he's got to figure a moral high ground for himself. At first, I killed her because she killed my children. So, see, I'm really the good guy. I came in and exacted revenge on this black widow woman here that killed her own children. And then I didn't kill myself because I didn't want to hurt anybody else. See, I'm always thinking of others. I'm special. The family murderer is all of a sudden worried about the safety of others. He's worried about strangers. He's not worried about his wife, his unborn son, his two daughters, but he's worried about the guy down on the corner. It's far more likely that the reason that Chris did not end his own life was because by killing his family, he thought he was hitting the reset button, starting a new life, and that everybody would believe him because he's so special. It's far more likely. With Chris having brought detectives up to speed on what he claims actually happened that day, there were still things that just didn't add up that Chris went on to address. For example, Chris admitted to planting bits of evidence for police and others to discover at his family home after the murders. He wedged his wife's cell phone and Apple Watch into the couch cushions. He also deliberately put Shannon's wedding ring on the counter so it would gel with his bogus story to police that she did not have any interest in trying to fix their failing marriage. All this while he snapped, I suppose. As to why Chris agreed to that infamous media interview on his front porch following the murders, Chris said he felt like he didn't have a choice. And that as the story spread, he was being hounded by the press and he felt like he had to make a statement. About this, he was probably right. After talking to the media, Chris said he just ended up lying more and more. Of course, during his new confession, Chris's mistress, Nicole, comes up. After all, she was considered a main factor in his motivation, and he confirmed what investigators and we all were thinking. Chris claimed that from the start, Nicole was fully aware that he was married. He says he never told her he was separated from Shannon. He says that when he first took out his phone to show Nicole pictures of his kids, that she saw a picture of Shannon on his home screen. He says she lied to authorities in order to save face and to create an image that would ensure that the public rallied around her, not against her. Chris also says that she was the one who pursued him, of course which he enjoyed. It flattered him and built him up. Remember all those mushy cards Chris would write to his mistress? Well, he told investigators that he felt like it was true. He felt like he loved her. 
He told him he felt like he could be himself with his mistress more than he could with his wife. She valued his opinions. She wanted to have sex all the time. He had blinders on. He didn't stop to think about how he was betraying his family. It's interesting to piece together what these two actually knew about each other. So Chris now claimed that Nicole knew she was the other woman, and at times she would get upset about having to play second fiddle, like when Chris would have to rush home to his family. And remember those internet searches she did about marrying your mistress? Chris claims he knew about those searches. While he says he never told her his wife was pregnant, he wasn't sure if she had looked at his or his wife's Facebook profile and seen for herself. Look, we can't definitely say if this mistress did or did not know about Chris still being very much married and expecting. Chris lies like a rug, so just because he's claiming to be completely truthful and candid now does not mean he is. Of course, for the mistress, it looks better to say that. Looks better to say she had no idea he was married, and for Chris, it looks better to say that she did. Still, between her Google search history and social media, pretty hard to believe that she was kept completely in the dark. However, Chris made it abundantly clear to both police during the investigation and the FBI and CBI afterwards that his mistress had no part in plotting or physically carrying out the murder of his family. He does say he acted alone. He claimed multiple times to have remorse for his sins. He says he hears the voice of his daughter Bella screaming, Daddy, no. He says he hears it in his head every day. He says he thinks every day what he would be doing with his kids. He said if he hadn't done what he had done, right now he would have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-month-old son, and a beautiful wife. Like I say, it's all about him. So now it's about poor Chris. I'm all alone. Throughout the course of the interview with investigators, there was a lot of talk about finding God, and Chris talks about reading Scripture daily now. But you have to wonder if that's just another way he uses to comfort himself and to connect with and ultimately manipulate others. I've met a lot of jailhouse Christians. It's a very quick transformation to be in prison for just a few months, and all of a sudden you've atoned and become deeply religious. I had former FBI criminal profiler Candace DeLong as a guest on my show where we discussed the Watts case and his personality, and we agree that Chris also exhibits clear signs of being a psychopath. That means the lack of capacity to feel guilt or remorse. He said he didn't know how he was able to do the following things. Kill his wife, kill his children, conceal the bodies, go to work, talk to his mistress, lie to the media. The real reason he might have had the capability to do such monstrous things is due to this antisocial personality. He just didn't care. It just didn't matter. He said the reason he gave this new confession was to help Shannon's family get closure. There was no closure for them. I've talked to them and they said there is no closure here because there's no justice here. When they spoke to me, the audio of Chris's confession had not yet been released, but they had been made aware of everything he said. But even knowing the truth, they were at a complete loss in trying to find meaning and moving forward. And I'm still on a mission for my daughter and my grandchildren because they wanted to live. They had the right to live and they had beautiful lives. They loved each other. They loved their family. They loved everybody that was around them, but yet still they were pulling knives out of their back at the end of the day. Do you understand? Well, I understand. Okay, so yeah. And but mama's here. I'm right here. Yeah. And I'm gonna stand up for them, Dr. Phil, if you'll allow me and you help me. I have a very big platform and you're on it right now and I hope you'll stay on it. Absolutely. As we look here at these beautiful, beautiful images. I, I want these beautiful images to be burned into the minds and hearts of America. Chris was a guy who had the world fooled, but no one was more fooled or betrayed than Shannon and her children. They love Chris. Shannon said he was the one for me. In a video posted to social media before her death, she said, and he is amazing and I can't tell you how wonderful he is. What wishful thinking. 
Still to come, what is Chris' life like now in prison? His bizarre new claims that he sees and speaks to his dead family. And is there a new woman he is fooling as he communicates with her from behind bars? Chris has given a full confession, but there are still even more unbelievable revelations to come. That's what's next on the final chapter of The Devil Beside Me, the Chris Watts story, husband, father, killer. I'm Dr. Phil.